Amen. Let us remain standing as we turn to God's holy word this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We'll read the first five verses. As you're turning there, I'd like to thank the session for their kindness and in inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you and to serve you this day, and we look forward to the Lord's blessing. John chapter 9, the first five verses. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Amen. O God, we ask now that by the power of your Spirit you would anoint us afresh. That you would grant us grace so that we might see the beauty of all that Christ is for us. And that we might know, Lord, our great task as your servants to bring you glory. And so bless our time and bless your people. They have come to hear the voice of Christ. And so may they hear through your servant. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. The backdrop to Jesus' miraculous healing of the blind man is the Feast of Tabernacles, and particularly the Festival of Water and the Festival of Lights that we have prior to this passage, both remembrances of God's grace to his people as they journey through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. How he was the one who gave them water from the rock and how he provided light as from the pillar to guide them. And our Lord Jesus uses these festivals then to show the Jews that he is the one, he is the one from whom streams of living water will flow to them that will satisfy their souls, the longing of their souls through the outpouring of His Holy Spirit and that they would believe in Him and He would give them the light of life. And this morning as, as we consider this passage, I want for us to, to consider our Lord's most profound response to his disciples 
They were rather cold and callous. They were insensitive in reference to this blind man. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, since we live in a fallen world with so many human tragedies and so much suffering all around us and among us, it's profitable for us to understand then our Lord's reply to his disciples. And then for us, as we hear his reply, for us then to respond in faith and obedience to our sacred task to be vessels for God's glory, vessels to display God's glory. But first, we see Christ's compassion for the needy, Christ's compassion for the needy. Leaving the temple precincts, John records for us this most beautiful scene, that as Jesus passed by, verse 1, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, our Lord had just taught the religious leaders in the temple, and they, having largely rejected him and his ministry, Jesus moves then outside the temple. And what a contrast we find the religious leaders in the temple rejecting him, and now the ones outside receiving him. But here was one who sat outside the temple because of his physical infirmity. He was not allowed the privilege to worship in the temple. And immediately we are reminded here, aren't we, of our Lord Jesus, how he came for those who are broken. He came for the weak. He came for the lost. Not for those who think they are well. Not for those who think they're all put together. But for those who are needy those who need a Savior. As Jesus once explained, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. I've come to call the righteous. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, you see, will have his kingdom filled with citizens. And one of those citizens is this poor afflicted beggar that Jesus saw outside the temple. This man, in his desperate need, caught the eye of our Lord Jesus Christ. He caught his attention. Now often when we think of our Lord's deeds of compassion as he heals them, we think of the healing of the lame man. We think of The one who had his arm withered and he brought it back to life. But we think of deeds. But here we have more than just deeds. The evangelist wants us to see that Jesus actually felt the inner turmoil that was within this man. And he had this emotional compassion, this pity towards this beggar. John here is showing us the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, his kindness, and that he is the one who takes notice of all our needs. He's the one 
who looks upon those who are frail, the vulnerable, and he sees them. Now this might not mean much to some of you, particularly if you're healthy and well, particularly if you are one of those who are strong and everything's going well in your life. But if you are in the midst of woes or struggles with sin, or you have concern over a loved one, a family member, a child, a parent, or perhaps your own health is struggling, then this statement of John concerning our Lord is most comforting and encouraging. He is the one who takes notice, John says, of the needy. But not only does he take notice, he takes the initiative. His seeing evokes a compassionate response. That's who our Lord is. That's who our God is. And that moving scene is, is shown to us throughout the Scriptures. Already in Exodus, our Lord records for us through His prophet Moses how God looked down and He heard the groaning and the oppression of His people as they were under the oppression of the Egyptians. And how Moses records for us at the end of chapter 2 how their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and then God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And then these words, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And as he explains this to Moses in the next chapter, he says to Moses, I've surely seen the affliction of my people. Yes, God sees the need that we are in, the calamities, and he responds. And the Psalms are filled with such declarations. Psalm 34 This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm 72, he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. And as you go through the prophets, they speak in the same way of the compassion and the kindness of our God as he sees us and then particularly in our spiritual condition. Just read Ezekiel 16, how gracious God is to his people. But my dear friends, this is exactly who our Lord is. He takes notice of those who are in need. And even though Christ is now in heaven, He is just as compassionate, just as tender in his embrace of sinners and sufferers as he ever was on earth. He is 
as the writer of Hebrews tells us, our sympathizing high priest. And the evangelist then highlights Christ's compassion here by contrasting the attitude and conduct of the disciples and their question in verse 2. I can only hope that this poor blind man didn't hear the disciples' question. But it's rather likely that he was in their presence. If you were a parent, I'm sure you've experienced that from your children. You've been embarrassed by what your little children had said, or maybe a question they asked, a comment they made while you were in a checkout line. But these aren't children. These are adults. They are grown, believing men. And hear what they callously ask Jesus. Rabbi, who sinned as they looked upon this blind beggar? Who sinned? This man or his parents? You see, the disciples have grown so accustomed to such a plight and such a sight that they didn't even notice him. They didn't understand what was going on. Were it not for Jesus' compassion upon this man, they would have just walked by like they did. But here they have a theological question that they want Jesus to to answer. No compassion. No, they want to know and be satisfied with some more intellect. The situation is like being in a doctor's office and the doctor has his intern there with him at his side. And the intern is asking questions about your condition. But he is not at all concerned about your condition. All he wants is to further his knowledge. But personally, he's aloof. That's what these disciples were like. They wanted to know what's behind this situation. What we would classify today as a congenital medical condition. Blindness from birth. And their specific question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he is born blind? They only saw two possibilities here, and only two. Either his sin was to blame, be blame, the blame, or his parents. Now, such a question reveals their hearts and their understanding into adversity. They believed that there was a one-to-one ratio between sin and the judgment of God, or better, adversity and the judgment of God. That sin and suffering are intimately connected. And in one sense, they're correct on the universal sphere. The scriptures teach us that there would be no death had sin not entered into the world. There would be no suffering without guilt. 
But you see, when these truths, these universal truths are transferred wholesale to an individual situation, and they make the same tight argument between sin and suffering and judgment of an individual, that goes far beyond Scripture, which is based on a deeper assumption the idea that, that affliction and pain or suffering is divine judgment for personal sin. And you know, these disciples aren't alone in this assumption. Not at all. You remember Job's miserable friends. And you read through Job and you understand how miserable they were. They thought Job was the worst sinner in the land because he is the most grievously afflicted person in the land. And thankfully, the book of Job was written to refute such falsehood by showing that Job suffered righteously and that his suffering had nothing to do with sin on his part. And sometimes we have these sneaking suspicions as well, don't we? As we look at the trials, the suffering, the heartaches of other brothers and sisters, the difficulties that they go through, we think in the back of our minds that there must be something amiss in their lives for such calamity to fall upon them. And sometimes... In our self-righteousness, we say, my life is so blessed. We're going through these problems. I must be doing something right to enjoy God's favor. But you see, it's exactly what the disciples are accusing the blind man or his parents of. We aren't like this blind man. Because we see, we're blessed. We don't have these problems. Now having said all that, we ought not to dismiss the disciples' question totally out of hand. No, the scriptures teach us that God does afflict a person. And there is a place for self-examination. To ask whether such a calamity has fallen upon us because of our personal sin. That's proper and right. And the Bible records many examples of this. Eli's death and the death of his two sons. The death of Aaron's sons. The death of David and Bathsheba's little son the leprosy of Miriam and King Uzziah. But in these situations, the difference is that Scripture gives us the response of God's sin, or of, of, of God to their personal sin. Scripture itself teaches us these truths about their calamity. But we can't take that prerogative to ourselves personally. And therefore, we can never rush to conclusion that every affliction 
is directly a result of God's judgment on sin or our sin. And our Lord Jesus quickly, you notice here, corrects the disciples' assumption with a most profound answer. So first, Jesus' compassion for this blind man. Second, Jesus' profound answer. The disciples wanted to know the cause of the man's blindness from his birth. Jesus, whose fault is it? Just tell us, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And then Jesus' profound response. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. It's not that this man sinned, Jesus said. It's not that his parents sinned that this man is born blind. Now, they must have been stunned. Now, you understand what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that the man and his parents weren't sinners. Of course they were. But Jesus was saying, rather, that his blindness is not a direct result of either the sin of the blind man or of his parents. Well, then what's the cause? That's what's on the mind of the disciples. But Jesus is wise. Jesus doesn't give them a cause. But notice what Jesus does give them. The purpose. The purpose for this man's blindness. Jesus said, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? It's not about this blind man. It's not about his parents. It's about God and about God's glory. His will is to be displayed through this man, through this vessel. And it's in the blindness that God's glory shines. God, Jesus says, is displaying his works through this man. He's showing the world his power, his majesty. And declaring a name for himself. That's what God's doing. Because as we read in the old covenant. God does all things for his own glory. All things for his own glory. Now just think of the plagues in Exodus. Don't you think that God could have taken care of Pharaoh. And all Pharaoh's mighty hosts just with one plague. Why ten plagues? So that his name might be made great in all the earth? And we have that constant refrain then in the Psalms and how the enemies of God in Canaan, they heard of the great and terrible name of the Holy One of Israel. You see... God wants to keep his name in the press of the world. 
for all generations that they might know that he is God and he alone. And this is exactly the Apostle Paul's point. When he writes to the Romans, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Romans 9, 17. Now what's important here to point out is that our God doesn't use pre-existing conditions and then says to himself, how can I use this for my glory? Not at all. He is sovereign. He is God over all. He is in control over all things. He makes all things, the evil and the good, for his glory. Our God doesn't pick up the pieces, so to speak, that have fallen. No, he has ordained the pieces from all eternity for his glory. Moses taught us that truth early on. Do you remember when he was commissioned by God at the burning bush? God gave him the mandate and he complained about how he wasn't eloquent to speak. He never was and still wasn't, even after God commissioned him to be a spokesman, as if something magical would happen when he was called. Did you remember how God responded to him? Exodus 4, verse 11. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Do you see? Psalm 139 can be sung by this blind man just as confidently as it can be sung by each of you. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. This blind man was created the way he was created in order that God might declare his glory in the church and throughout the world, that the works of God might be manifested, that his name might be glorified. And we'll see this more in the weeks to come. Now, some of you might say this morning, Ari, if I am understanding you correctly, that God created this blind man with his infirmity so that God might be glorified through him. Yes, exactly. You mean God pursues his own glory at my expense? Yes. He makes his name great through my affliction? Yes. I'm not sure I like that. 
That's a high price to pay to be a vessel for God's glory. Now, of course, we understand such reluctance. Who wants to go through adversity and difficulty in this life? Who wants to? And yet it is true, it is true. God uses us as vessels in all our helplessness, our needs, our weaknesses, so that his name might be made great in us and through us to the ends of the earth. Now, if that's too much for you, the evangelist John wants to bring you back to the narrative. It's the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ who said in the hearing of the blind man, verse 6, having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, anointed the man's eyes with mud, sent him to the pool of Siloam. He went, washed, and came back seeing. Dear loved ones, do you know what's behind this difficult teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's the cross. It's the cross. The one who saw this man in his need is the same one who knew the cost of becoming a vessel for God's glory. And he too had questions and anguish about being a vessel for God that God might make for himself a name. The evangelist Luke, chapter 12, records these words in verse 50. The words of our Lord Jesus in his anguish. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And then during that dark night of of his soul on the Mount of Olives, While being in agony, he prayed and he prayed earnestly as his perspiration turned to blood. He said, Father, Father, if you're willing, remove the cup from me. Remove the affliction. Remove the suffering of your servant. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will, Father be done. And how later in John's gospel, just a couple chapters down, chapter 12, we hear the cries of our Lord's own soul. Chapter 12, verse 27. Now is my soul troubled And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I've come to this hour. 
Father, glorify your name. And how will the Father be glorified in his Son, Jesus Christ, in his greatest weakness? The most severe trial when you see him on the cross bearing the curse of the wrath of Almighty God. And you look at the Son. And you ask, who sinned, this man or someone else? Well, it's not this man. Oh, he's the one who perfectly loved his father. He's the one who delighted in the law of his father and doing his father's will. He perfectly loved his father. He loved him. He submitted himself to his father. He was sinless, undefiled. He was pure. Oh no, it's not him who was on the cross. But it's you and me who sinned. And it's our sin that he's bearing And that's why he's on the cross. So that the works of God might be displayed in him, the suffering servant. He knew the cost of being a vessel for the display of God's glory. And he said to his father, Father, your will be done. Use me. My dear friends, this is the life then that he calls you to live. A life which brings him glory. So Christ's compassion for this blind man Christ's profound answer to his disciples. And lastly, Christ's call to share his life. Do you see that in verse 4? Jesus said to his disciples, notice, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Jesus doesn't say, I must work the works of God because he sent me. No, Jesus includes his disciples and he says, we must work the works of him who sent me. And this is Jesus' way then of including his disciples with him in his work. And do you see the urgency that our Lord puts on it? He says, night is coming when no man can work. And so he's saying, let us use our time, let us use our resources, our lives. Let us use all that he has given us. These few short years that we live on this earth. Let us use them for God's glory. 
that God would use us vessels so that his name might be displayed, placarded across the world. His glory might fill this earth. Yes, of all people, our Lord understands the cost. But he knows it'll be for your good. Because God is committed to your good. He's committed to your, glory, uh, your good. Look once again at the blind man. His very need of blindness evoked Christ's compassion. That's the Lord's way of showing us that he, that we rather, will never lose out in serving him. Every difficulty, every trial, every sickness, every tear is always and will always be used for our good because he has promised that all things will work out for our good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's the purpose. Romans 8. And perhaps this is why in John 21, as we go to the end of the book, John 21, verse 18, Jesus said to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And then John, the beloved disciple, he adds this editorial note. This he said to show by, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. You see? God has so inextricably bound up his own glory with our good that whatever is for his glory is absolutely for your good. God is never in a quandary wondering to himself, if I do them good, will I lose out on my glory? Never. Or do I pursue my glory and not their good? And because there's no dilemma with God, that's not even a thought in God's mind. Neither should it be with us. We should never ask, shall I give myself to be a vessel for God's glory or should I pursue my own good? Know what Jesus is saying here, what his life taught us, 
is that rather you ought to offer yourself as vessels for God's glory, for his honor, so that you might make his name great. That he might do with you whatever he wished to do. Because whatever he does with you is always for your good, your eternal good. And he will get all the praise, all the glory, and you will receive all of his blessing. My dear brothers and sisters, this ought to be a great encouragement to you as you endure the trials of life. And as you grow in spiritual maturity, you will notice there will be a change. There will be a change. You will change your question from asking, why, Lord? Why did this happen? And you'll more quickly pray, Lord, how in my current situation, in my struggle, in the deep struggles of life, how can I in my illness display the works of you, my God, so that you might be glorified? And when it's difficult, and sometimes exceedingly difficult, to ask that question, this is what you do. You look to the cross. You behold the one, the sinless one, who became sin for you. So that the great works of God might be displayed to all men for all eternity. For the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest display of the glory of God that this world has ever seen. It's also the grandest display of God, our covenant Lord, and of his determination to bless his people. Vessels for God's glory. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord, how solemn a task you give us. that we so often forget when it's going well that you've called us to be vessels of your glory. But then when our lives are entangled with adversity and trials and afflictions, then we ask the difficult questions. But Father, you have taught us 
our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us. And he has shown us in his very life how we are to respond, how we are to live. Oh God, you want your name to be made great in all the earth, among our families, our communities, with our colleagues. You want your name to be displayed in our lives. You want your works to declare your glory just like creation. And so we pray, dear Father, that you would continue to uphold us and grant us your grace, the power of your spirit, so that we might say with our blessed Lord, Your will be done. Use my infirmities, my difficult situation, to display your glory. For I want to be a willing vessel in the service of my Lord. Oh, grant each of us that response. And may it come quicker and quicker as our age increases, that, Lord, there might be a maturity among us of your work of grace. And so bless your dear people. And, Father, as there are some, no doubt, who are in great stress and experience the anxieties of the soul or the hardships of this life, Father, Comfort them, encourage them with yourself today that you are a God who sees and responds. Thank you for using us then as your creatures for your glory and continue to bless your holy name. We pray this in the name of your beloved Son. Amen. Well, let's rise as we respond, singing together selection 491 in the Trinity. 491, Jesus calls us or the tumult.